This evening we're continuing on in our series in Genesis. And so if you have a Bible this evening and you want to follow along, we're in Genesis chapter 33. Genesis chapter 33, I'm reading the the whole chapter this evening. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the woman and the children. Who are these with you? He asked. Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, what do you mean by all these droves I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that I have received, now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me, and I have all I needed. Because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Then Esau said, let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are tender and I must care for the ewes and the cows that are nursing their young. If they are driven hard, just one day all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the droves before me and that of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Esau said, then let me leave some of my men with you. Why do that? Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of of my Lord. So that day, Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Succoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Succoth. After Jacob came to Badan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within the site of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. And we give thanks to God. Just before we turn to the word, let's pray once again, just asking the Lord to speak to us very clearly from his word. Lord, once again, we need a a humble spirit, and we pray that that might be the case, that you will 
open up our eyes so that we might read the word that's in front of us, that you'll open up our ears so that we might hear what you're saying through the word, open up our hearts so that we might truly obey you, so that we will go from this place as first-class responders, responding to your word in a clear way. Lord, into your hands we commit our time together. May we truly be blessed. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. One of my uh, preaching heroes was and continues to be R.C. Sproul. Sadly missed, he went home to be with the Lord uh, a few years ago. But R.C. was famous for promoting and loving Reformed theology. He particularly loved Calvin and Luther. And he often quoted Luther's teaching and his Latin formulas. Now, I don't know if any of you had to go through the ordeal of trying to do Latin at school. I had to. I struggled with Latin like I struggled with most languages, including English. No one, no one learned me how to speak proper. That was the problem. But even I understand this particular Latin formula. I understand it. That's because I'm wonderful. No, it's not. It's because R.C. explained it to me on a YouTube video, and you can watch it if you want to. Let's see if you can uh, understand what that says. Simul. What does simul mean? Or do you think it stands for? Well, if we get the words simultaneously from simul, it means at the same time. Now, this word is a silent J, ustos. What do you think it is? Just. Okay, so at the same time, just, et, that's the easiest one, and peccator, sinner, a sinner, simultaneously, just or righteous, and a sinner. That was made famous by R. Martin, Martin Luther. At the same time, we might say, the righteous and the sinner. I suppose it might be a good illustration of what we were thinking about this morning in the, um, the double-minded man, the double-minded person. At one time, the righteous, at the same time, the sinner. This is a kind of reformed view or biblical view of justification by faith. In our justification, we are at one and the same time righteous because of Jesus, and we're sinners because of our fallen nature. My own righteousness brings utter despair and absolutely no hope. There's not a hope of me getting to God by myself, but Jesus and his righteousness makes me righteous and just. That's the glorious good news. At the same time, Alistair McNeely is righteous, but Alistair McNeely is also a sinner. That's basically the struggle that we live in this side of eternity. And you know what? We're going to see that in our friend Jacob in these chapters that lie ahead. In chapter 33, he meets his brother Esau, 
He's reconciled to him. We just read about that just a few moments ago. But before that could happen in chapter 33, he had to meet God. He had to be reconciled to God. We saw that last week at the end of chapter 32. Do you remember that scene where Jacob wrestled with God? God allowed Jacob to grip him. Well, actually, if truth be told, it was God who gripped Jacob. It was always like that, of course, for Jacob. If we really understand what was going on in his life, if we could only understand what's going on in our lives, it's always like that. We are constantly in the grip of grace, the grip of grace. From birth right through his early life, Jacob was in the grip of grace. Even, and I say even, in his sin and rebellion, he was in the grip of grace. In his grabbing and cheating and stealing and plotting and lying and scheming, he was always, always, always in the grip of grace. God was never going to let him go. At the same time, the righteous and the sinner Amazing grace. That's why it is so amazing. We sing about amazing grace. We say we love amazing grace, but do we really understand amazing grace? The grip of grace. That's what keeps you going on. Yeah, you're righteous, but you're also a sinner. In verse 26 of um, chapter 32, Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob was wrestling for blessing, and God loves to bless. He longs to bless, and he blesses. Jacob is really saying there, God, I want you. I want you. I have always, always wanted you. Despite my sin, despite the errors, despite the scheming and lying and plotting and cheating. I've always needed you, and I've always wanted you. And God said to him basically, yeah, Jacob, you need me, and you need my blessing, and you need my grace. I will give you a new beginning. In fact, I'll show I'm going to give you a new beginning because I'm going to give you a new name. And of course, the new name is Israel. Verse 28 of chapter 32, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. So from Jacob, you were the heel grabber, the supplanter, the plotter, to Israel, the one who prevails with God. That's what that means, the one who prevails with God. Verse 31, he's now limping with a damaged hip, but although physically not the same as he was, He's been delivered from self. He's been delivered from sin. He's a new man with a new name. He's now righteous. But as we will see, he's still a sinner. God had to deal with Jacob before Jacob could deal with Esau. And very often that's exactly what it is in, in our relationships with one another. We must get it right this way before we can get it right this way. 
In chapters 33 and particularly 34, we're going to see the new Israel in action and sadly the old Jacob in action. And that's really where we're, we're going to go with. I suppose we can make the righteous new man Israel. We're going to see him in action first of all. And then the second half, a shorter part, will be the old sinner man, Jacob, comes back into play again because, of course, we are that crazy mixture of both. First of all, the righteous new man, Israel. So he was a changed man spiritually, called now Israel. He's a changed man physically because he's got a limp. So there's no more running for Jacob. I guess the reason why he's God slapped him on the hip and put it out of joint. For these two reasons, there's no more running. He's done with running. Physically, spiritually, he's a different man. And now that the vertical relationship with God has been fixed, time for the horizontal relationship with Esau to be fixed. So what we're seeing here in the early part of chapter 33 is the old man gone. Well, temporarily at least. And the new man has come. But of course, he's got a long way to go, just like me and you. See, one of the tests of our salvation, one of the tests of the fact that we are reconciled to God is how we deal with each other and broken relationships in a broken world. Because in Christ, we are no longer in the flesh. That means we don't act according to the flesh. Unfortunately, we're still, we still have the desires of the flesh and the weaknesses of the flesh. And therefore, this battle goes on inside our heads. And sometimes the battle goes on between us in relationships. It's a battle we need to fight and we need to win in Christ. It's a battle, of course, that some just don't even turn up for. It's a battle that some people don't even try to fight. They just, they just give up and they just let bad relationships exist. Bad relationships continue. But no, Israel, Jacob, new man Israel, in Christ we might say, not in the flesh we might say, he steps out to be reconciled to his brother. Up to now, Jacob's not been a very nice man at all but at least we see some change. We see something of the new man that God was creating. We see godly strength, first of all. That's verses one to four. God changed him, yes, physically and spiritually. Up to now, he was self-reliant, full of fear, on the run. Now, he's God-reliant, full of godly strength and courage, walking out to meet his brother. Can you see the difference? He's eager to reconcile because now in God, he's different. Now in God, he's able for the first time in 20 years to be reconciled to his brother. He's prepared to face the brother who hates him. He's prepared to face the brother who wanted to kill him. He's prepared to be reconciled to the brother he has defrauded, not just once, but twice. In chapter 33, or most of it, we witness never-before-seen 
faith and reliance on God in the life of Jacob. Never before seen. Of course, we might say he could not escape, but I think we should be more positive and said he would not escape. He clings to God now in his heart, just as he clung to God in that wrestling match at the end of 32. He's relying upon God's strength, and he knows he must rely on God's strength, his strength, and he has it through the gospel. I hope you can see the application. So must we. So must we. Of course, for death, we need the gospel, don't we? But for life, in a broken world, with broken relationships, we need the gospel. Jacob suddenly realized that um, to run and to keep on scheming and to keep on pretending and to keep on lying was foolish. To rely upon his wit and his self was foolish. He, he realized after that wrestling with God that it's time to rely on God. It's time to rely on the gospel. I hope that's a lesson we can learn even tonight. Because we can have everything else. We can have absolutely everything else in the world. But if we don't have the gospel, if we don't have that godly strength, we really don't have anything. And you'll notice there in verse 1, he faces 400 men. Now, that may not sound like a lot nowadays, but back then it was an army, a sizable army. But again, instead of running, instead of relying on self, he stays, he trusts, he obeys. It didn't look good there, did it, for him? But he wants now to please God, not himself. He wants to obey his Father, not his own desires. See, that's the mark of a believer, isn't it? That's the mark of a strong believer, strong in the Lord. And one of the things that Jesus said proves that we are His is when we uh, love our brothers and sisters. He goes further, He says, about loving even our enemies. Isn't that hard? But only a gospel-empowered Jacob could do this. And I suppose we've been, um, after the, the, the events of the wrestling with God, we might say, come on, Jacob, show us the change. Show us the change. Are you really now Israel? Or are you just a kind of a, a pretendy Jacob? Well, he did show us the evidence. I just keep going. I will just keep going. What am I? Okay. I prefer these things anyway. Do you know what? I said there are two things I would never do is wear a Britney mic and have a man bag. <laughs> and in the last 18 months, I have had to compromise with both. They are. 
Godly strength, genuine humility. We see this too. God is not just working, of course, in Jacob's life. He's also working in Esau's life. Jacob runs, verse 3. Notice that? He bows down to the ground seven times. Esau also runs, verse 4, and embraces Jacob. Hugs and kisses all around. A great family reunion. But I think it's the humility of Jacob that is revealing. He's down in the dirt before his brother. Verse 3, he himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Now remember, Jacob is the patriarch. It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And yet the believer, Jacob, bows before the unbeliever, unbeliever Esau. Because Jacob has received grace, he now expresses grace. We see a very different Jacob here, don't we? Humility. Oh, it's hard to be humble, isn't it? It goes against everything that's in our society. It goes against everything that's within our natures to be humble. But it's very posture, so very different. No longer running down on his face, bowing. I hope we see the difference from Jacob to Israel, from everything in his own strength, now acting in the power of God, from pride and arrogance to, and self-reliance to now genuine humility. Why? Because he's been changed by the gospel. But remember, at the same time, the righteous and the sinner. Never forget that, because we're going to see a twist in the tail at the end. Godly strength, genuine humility. Technology's let me down tonight big time. Press the next one, please. Express gratitude. He expresses gratitude for all that he had to God. He doesn't claim any of this for himself. In the past, he had did... He had performed all things in his own strength. He had used deception. He used his wit. He schemed and plotted and stole. We've seen it before. He grabbed and hoarded and kept. Now, he expresses his gratitude and he shows immense generosity. He opens up his hands, begs that his brother takes all his stuff. Full of gratitude, full of generosity. That is the sign of a believer. You see? Thank you, Lord. And here, take, take it all because it's yours. Rather than no thanks or keeping it all. It's a difference between clenched fists and open hands. So why is he full of gratitude and generosity? Because the gospel has changed. Of course, Esau has no need for his stuff, no desire for his stuff. Verse 9, uh, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Verse 10, no please, says Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. 
He's saying, I've received from God. I am grateful. I want to share with you. And of course, we see what happens in verse 11. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. God has blessed me, says Jacob. I want to. I need to bless you. What has changed him? I say again. The gospel has changed him. As it does us. If you find it hard to say thank you to people, or thank you to God, if you find it hard to be generous to God and his work, or to the church and its work, Maybe you need to ask God to let you see what he's given to you. And maybe you need to ask him to help you to be a little more, showing a little more gratitude and a little more generosity. But what we have here is a beautiful picture of conflict resolution and there are reconciliation lessons all over the place here. Kevin DeYoung, highlights too, and I want to share them with you. Um, first of all, they don't try and change the past. It's very important. Yes, it's important to acknowledge the past, and it's important that forgiveness to be offered and hopefully received for the past, but you can't change the past. Now, Esau could have said, now, wait a minute here, Jacob. Now, come on, let's just sort things out here, because you stole my birthright. You stole my blessing. Let's get down and deal with that before we do anything else but all these animals. No. Or Jacob could have said, now wait a minute, Esau. Because of your hatred, I had to run from my home. And I've had to be away for 20 long years. And while I was away, Uncle Laban, he cheated me. Because of you, it's your fault. Let's get down and talk about that before we deal with anything else. But neither of them do that. When we need to deal with um, the past, the difficulties of the past, the hurts, yes, we may need to talk about the past, but we can't change the past. We can't undo the past. We should not be imprisoned by the past. We should not harbor resentment about the past. But we've got to remember we can't change the past. It's a very useful lesson to learn in the whole reconciliation issue. I'm sure that's going to come up on Wednesday night in the Q&A because we did something about that. Here's another thing that Kevin DeYoung points out. They focus on what they have. They focus on what they have, not on what they... I don't know what I'm trying to say there. But basically, this is what I'm trying to say. They both focus on what they have instead of what they don't have. Yeah, that's okay. That's, yeah. <laughs> I just couldn't read that. Please give me a pair of glasses. Um, in other words, they were magnanimous. That sort of person is a great character. How do we put it? They don't need to settle every score. They don't need to be vindicated on every issue. Yes, there was anger. Yes, there was hurt. But actually, they were prepared to let bygones be bygones. In verse 9, I really have plenty. 
Verse 11, I really have all I need. They saw what they had, not what they lost. That's a useful lesson to have when we're trying to reconcile with a brother. It doesn't make reconciliation guaranteed, but I'm sure it'll make it easier. Don't focus on the past. Don't focus on what you don't have, but what you do have. See, the sign of the gospel at work is thankfulness and gratitude and generosity and gracious focus of the past, the present, and the future. Yeah, there's a changed man here, isn't there? No longer Jacob, now Israel, the new man in action. And I'm sure we're, we're pleased because that's a, you know, it's a good model to follow. But remember, maybe we should say it together, at the same time, the righteous and the sinner. Because now you see, we see the, the sinner old man, Jacob, in action again. This is an illustration of that double-mindedness we talked about this morning from James 1. And James is going to deal with that more later on in chapter 1. Temptation leads to des- um, links with desire, leads to sin and death. But we see the old Jacob, especially in chapter 34. Chapter 34, I want you to read it for next week. Uh, it's not an easy read, and it's not going to be an easy sermon to preach. Normally, the hard passages I give to Jeff to preach but I'm going to have to do it myself next week. But we also see the old man Jacob here in the end of 33. So let's quickly deal with that. Um, Gifts are exchanged there in verse 11. Then Esau offers to accompany Jacob and his family to his home, verse 12, in Seir. And verses 13 to 16, Jacob promises, notice that he promises, to travel to Seir, following behind Esau and his men, but at a pace that would suit his family and his animals. Now, that seems reasonable now, doesn't it? Oh, you go on ahead, Jacob. We're going to come along behind. Because there are lots of children, lots of animals. We'll meet you there. But as verse 17 to 20 points out, Jacob had no intention of traveling to Seir. Now, in one way he was right because... um, it wouldn't have been right for him to go to live in Esau's home because that would be outside the promised land. But it was not right of Jacob to lie to Esau because his excuses were lies. And what we see is the old schemer Jacob in action again. He's double-minded. He's double-minded. But remember, righteous in God, but still a sinner. Esau travels south. Jacob travels west. And he comes, first of all, to a place called Succoth, and he builds himself a house there and settles there for a little while. Then he goes on to Shechem, and he bought some land there. Now, the good news is that he's in the promised land, but he was not where he said he would be. And he's He's not where he said he would end up under God. He made a promise. If you want to flick back to Genesis 28 and verse 20. Do you remember this is the, 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 the time he, uh, Jacob had the dream at Bethel? Verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I 
Return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. You see, he promised God he would return to Bethel, but he stopped short. 48 hours away. Some would say 24, but I think it's about 21 miles away. And I thought, gosh, you need to be good. You need to be pretty fit to do 21 miles in a day. So 48 hours away, two days away, where he said he would go when he returned from his travels. And instead of returning to Bethel and build God his house as he promised he would, Jacob is at Succoth and then Shechem building his own house and buying his own plot of land. Oh, have we not done that as well? Oh, God, if you get me out of this mess, if you get me out of this trouble, or God, because you bless me, this is what I'm going to do for you. And then very often, when the bit comes, we don't keep our vows. Double-mindedness. It's really half obedience, which, of course, is disobedience. It's clear disobedience. Instead of keeping his vow and his promise to Yahweh, Jacob allows the lure of Shechem to seduce him. And he simply dethroned God, as we learned through the catechism, he dethroned God and replaced him with self. That's the old Jacob back again, you see. Shechem became an idol to him. As we're going to see, Shechem was a prosperous city full of opportunity and powerful people and lots of money. And he, was, he had his head turned. Jacob said, Lord, I promise I will return to Bethel. I'm going to build a house for you. But 20 years later, he steps onto the promised land, and immediately he forgets God. He looks to people for the things that God had promised him. Do you remember what God had promised him? Jacob, I'm going to make your name great. I will bless you, just like I did your granddad, Abraham, and your dad, Isaac. I'm going to bless you, Jacob. Jacob, by his actions, the old man taking over again, he said, I'm not going to wait for him. I'm not going to wait for God. I'm going to take my own action. I, I will use these people to make my name great. He's living in disobedience, double-mindedness. And as we will see next week, that decision had major consequences for his family. Major consequences for himself. Major consequences for the people, the men of Shechem. Now, we're going to read that and, and study that next week. A man of Shechem rapes his daughter, Dinah. And his sons, Jacob's sons, take revenge. And all because... Jacob was in the wrong place. Jacob was caught up, and we'll see it again next week, in self-centered, passive disobedience. I say to you, mums and dads, grannies and granddads, the decisions you make can either bless your children or damage them.
Be very careful. Be very careful how you obey and how you live. You see, at the same time, righteous and a sinner. But look how it all ends. Verse 20. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, God, the God of Israel. Oh, claiming God, good. Jacob, good. Worshiping God publicly, good. Jacob, good. But in the wrong place. The old man was fighting to be in control, and the old man won. The new Israel and the old Jacob. At times I get frustrated with Jacob. I want to say, Jacob, you're a fool. You're a double-minded fool. And yet, what keeps me back from saying that is that I see so much of myself in him. Don't you? At one, one hand, righteous, and the other hand, a sinner, a boiling, a boiling mixture of faith and unbelief, of holy resolve and idols, of vows kept and vows forgotten. At the moment, we are uh, two-thirds our way through the church membership classes. Uh, we're having a great time. I like, hope everybody else in the, the class thinks so too. But as I was um, going through the class just last Thursday night, I, suddenly, and with this in mind, I, I couldn't help but think of all the vows that are made at the front of this church here. You know, over the years... How many years are we here? Over 20 years. Marriage vows, baptismal vows, church membership vows. Like, for instance, parents, will you be loving and faithful and dutiful? Will you bring up this child in the worship and teaching of the church? Or what about, will you promise church member to attend and pray and serve and be loyal to the leadership and support it your church financially in every other way you can? Or, or what about... Or what about, will you be a faithful, dutiful, loving husband or wife? All taken here. Have all the vows been kept? You see, we're just like Jacob in many ways. Righteous. And a sinner. Dethroning God following our idols, a bit of Jesus, as we thought about this morning, a bit of Jesus and lots of the world, a bit of Jesus and everything else that we can cram into our lives with success and money and power. While we rest secure in Jesus, and I'm, I, I hope that's, I pray that's what you're doing tonight, you're resting in Jesus and in his righteousness. We are declared righteous by God's declaration but we are sinners in need of more grace. And here's the good news. The sinner we need, sorry, the Savior we need, if I get that right, the Savior we need is the Savior we have. That's the great encouragement. The Savior we need is the Savior we have. Jacob did go to Bethel eventually. We're going to see that in the chapters that lie ahead. But he went there humiliated and hurt. Because God is relentless in his grace. And God will have his way in my life and yours. Righteous man, and yet still a sinner, receiving grace in need of grace.
So tonight, as we conclude, are we not grateful for grace? See, when the new self, the righteous one, is to the fore, it's because of grace. And when the old self is to the fore, it just proves we need more grace. And so may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in all the battles of life. Gracious Savior, again we see the Savior that we need is the Savior that we already have. And your amazing grace is sweet and beautiful. And we ask that um, we just might trust you and enjoy you more in these hard days of being a Christian, fighting against the world and the evil one, as well as our weak flesh. Lord, grant us grace upon grace upon grace. May we know what it means to live in Christ today, tomorrow, and forevermore. Amen.